Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind that second veil, the veil between the two rooms, there was the tabernacle which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But when these things have thus been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer room, the outer tabernacle, performing uh, the ritual of worship, the divine worship. But into the second room, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance, talking about the Yom Kippur ordinance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this in these things, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which itself is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of renewal." a time of a new order. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that were to come, he entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of bulls and, or goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, the outer uh, uh, skin, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So again, he's, he's using the Levitical system and the tabernacle associated with it. He's drawing on that to show the purpose for which God intended them, the role that they were to play in his purposes. And he says that they ultimately, they served as the Holy Spirit's witness. Through them, the Spirit witnessed to the enduring alienation that existed between God and his covenant people. The Spirit testified that the way into the holy place was not yet open. There remained this alienation between God and his covenant people. We saw last time this basic idea that as long as the first tent 
And that doesn't just mean the original tabernacle, but that original sanctuary, the, the sanctuary associated with the Mosaic Covenant, which included the first temple and then the rebuilt temple after the exile. But as long as that tent, that first tent, stood, the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed. That tabernacle, and by implication, the worship associated with it, as well as the covenant that it, it uh, was the basis of, that needed to pass away before the way into the holy place would be revealed, before it would be established. So he says the tabernacle, and again, the Levitical system attached to it, the covenant that it was associated with, but he says specifically the tabernacle itself was ordained by God as a parable, to be a parable, a symbol for the present time, the time that has come in the Messiah. And for that reason, the ministration associated with that tabernacle, with that first tent, the gifts, the offerings, those things were ultimately unable to achieve what they were actually speaking to, what they were directed toward. In his words, they could not result in a cleansed and a liberated conscience. They worked for the washing of the outer man, but they could not deal with the issue of conscience. And that's, that's an idea that he's going to keep dealing with. The inner defilement, the inner uncleanness. They could not result in a cleansed and liberated conscience. So again, as I said last time, the point is not just the elimination of the previous order, but that that previous order would find its fulfillment in that which it both modeled and also prefigured. The earthly tabernacle was modeled after a heavenly reality that would itself become extant on the earth. It would itself come into being in an ultimate way. There was a reality behind the earthly tabernacle, but that ultimate reality was to itself become manifest and everlasting in God's intention. So he builds this case for ultimately how those things look to and would find their fulfillment in relation to the Messiah and the messianic work, the messianic renewal. And so, but when Messiah appeared as a high priest. So I've titled this the high priest of the promised good things. And remember, again, he's dealing with, again, this, this comparison and contrast. A superior priest, a superior covenant. Here, a superior ministration. The high priest of the promised good things. And I want to just deal with this in two parts. I'm not going to go verse by verse per se, but the two main ideas. Just as he first dealt with the Levitical tabernacle and the Levitical priestly ministration, so he deals with this new tabernacle, so to speak, this new sanctuary associated with the good things that were to come, the Messiah's coming, and then also the ministration associated with it. So the new sanctuary and then the new ministration. And he tells us four things about this sanctuary, four things that describe it. He calls it a greater and a more perfect tabernacle. 
also one not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And again, he's referring back to this idea of a heavenly tabernacle that lies back of what Moses constructed on the earth. What Moses constructed was a model, and a model is a replication or a representation of something that exists behind it, right? If you build a model of a 68 stingray, you assume that a 68 stingray actually exists, right? Otherwise, your model isn't of a 68 stingray. So he describes this sanctuary associated with Christ's ministration in terms of four descriptors, and there's really two pairs. Greater, more perfect, and then not made with hands, not of this creation. The first two describe the comparative quality of this tabernacle. It's greater. Greater than what? Greater than the former. It's more perfect. More perfect than what? More perfect than the former. Greater and more perfect are imprecise terms. And we should be saying, in what sense? Greater can mean lots of things, right? Greater in size, greater in beauty, greater in location, right? Greater can mean lots of things. Same thing with more perfect. Perfection in terms of completion, perfection in terms of beauty, perfection in terms of form, perfection in what sense? In how is it greater? How is it more perfect? And the second set of descriptors give us some insight into that. It is greater and it is more perfect in the sense that it transcends this creation. And therefore, it transcends the former tabernacle that was made with hands. It is not of this creation. It is greater and more perfect in that it transcends the creation. It's not a physical structure erected by human labor. But the writer also gives some other insight into it just in terms of the wider context in that this new sanctuary is associated with the new priest. It's a sanctuary associated with the Messiah's priestly ministration, and he's already developed this whole notion of a new order of priesthood, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, a different order, a priest king. This new sanctuary serves the ministration of the priest king, the ministration that is suited to the good things that have come in him. Now, again, all of that doesn't give us any specific, uh, you know, definitive uh, definition of what that is. But it, it bounds for us how to at least think in general terms about this new sanctuary or this sanctuary that he associates um, with the messianic ministration. So greatness or superiority in terms of greater and more perfect pertain to the ideas of ultimacy and effectuality or efficacy. Ultimacy and efficacy. The superiority associated with that which is behind the model and that which is ultimately destined in God's design. Ultimacy, efficacy. 
the superiority associated with substance over shadow, the way in which the substance surpasses or transcends the shadow in terms of greatness and perfection, the way in which fulfillment transcends promise. So the sanctuary associated with the Messiah is greater and more perfect in the sense that it's the ultimate reality that the former sanctuary modeled, but also predicted. It's the heavenly counterpart that underlay or lie behind Israel's tabernacle. The transcendent sanctuary idea or reality that has now in association with the Messiah, penetrated time and space to be established in the world in connection with Jesus' ministration. So think again in terms of model ultimacy, model ultimacy. You know, what lies behind the earthly tabernacle and what ultimately in God's design is to be manifest in an ultimate sense in the world. The concept of a heavenly tabernacle, the, the, the readers, the Jewish readers wouldn't have said, what are you talking about? A greater, more, uh, uh, a greater tabernacle that's not of this creation, not made with hands. What are you talking about? They would have understood because Israel had the understanding of a heavenly tabernacle. All the way back to Moses, again, when God says, make this tabernacle according to the pattern I give to you. Israel understood that the God of Israel inhabited a heavenly sanctuary. The Lord's throne was in heaven. And yet, God's enthroned, his place of enthronement in his sanctuary also intersected the earth. We've talked about this before. The earthly tabernacle represented the place where the heavenly tabernacle connected with earth. Yahweh was enthroned in the heavenlies, and yet he also was enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. The Psalms talk about God's throne in heaven, the footstool of his throne being the Ark of the Covenant. So there was a heavenly reality, and they understood that, and the earthly tabernacle was not just a model of that heavenly reality, but it was the the place where the heavenly reality and the earthly created realm came together, the intersection of heaven and earth, if you will. And so Israel understood that the God who fills time and space, the God who fills all in all, also dwelt with his people. If you go back and look at Solomon's um, prayer after the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, he says, O Lord, you who fill all of heaven and earth, there is no dwelling, no building that can contain you. And yet you've chosen to make this your house and put your name here. That all the nations would come and meet with you here in this place. I mean, he's speaking about the ultimate purpose for God's dwelling being on the earth. A house of prayer for all the nations. God's ultimate design. So the God who fills all in all, who who can't inhabit or be confined to a building, nonetheless chose by design to dwell with his people. Israel understood that. 
And when the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple, when it was destroyed, the prophets promised that there would be a renewed temple, right? The prophets said, God will restore his dwelling place. And they spoke of that restored dwelling place in the language of the temple and the tabernacle. God will rebuild his dwelling place. And they used that kind of language and imagery. But they also gave the impression that this restored house would be greater than the former manifestation. You can see that in a lot of places, but one of the easy places to see it is the whole last section in Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel was a priest. And Ezekiel's prophecy centers in the priestly ministration and therefore in the temple itself. Ezekiel sees God's glory depart the house, the temple. And by the time you get to 24... Jerusalem is under siege, chapter 24 of Ezekiel, Jerusalem's under siege, and the word to the prophet is the city and the temple are going away, and yet there will be a restored house. That's what you see depicted at the end, those, uh, chapter 40 to 46 of, of Ezekiel. God will restore his dwelling place, but it's presented in the language of the temple and its features and its, its form and its apportionments, but it's also in a very stylized way. The same but different, the same but different. You see that in Haggai's prophecy. Now with Haggai and Zechariah's post-exile prophets, they're already re- starting to rebuild that second temple after the Jews have begun to come back from Babylon. Ezekiel didn't see that happen. Haggai and Zechariah, uh, as post-exile prophets, see that happening. And yet God says, this temple that you're building, it's important that you build it, but there's not the ultimacy in what you see. Once again, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will bring in the precious value of the nations. And so the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former house, and in this place I will give peace. We saw in Zechariah that the promise is to the building of a house that is transcendent in that it's, yes, Zerubbabel is, is in charge of building this new temple, but ultimately it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That context is not just a greeting card to give to people to encourage them. The promise there is that Yahweh will see this house rebuilt. And it will be, when the capstone goes on it, it will be to shouts of grace, grace to it. Not by might, not by power, by my spirit. The spirit will build the house of Yahweh. And you come to chapter 6 of Zechariah and the crowning of the high priest. He will be a priest upon his throne. This is branch, the branch of David. Behold the branch. He will build the house of the Lord. And he will rule as a priest upon his throne. And men will come from east and west and north. And men will come from all distant places to come and to be parties in this building of the house of the Lord. So a, 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 a revealed and promised ultimate sanctuary, but one that will transcend 
what Israel had known, a new sanctuary. God, who, had, who fills all of his creation, had purpose to dwell with his people. That's what the sanctuary was about. But now that phenomenon would take place in a new way. It wouldn't just be God's proximal presence with his people, God dwelling in the midst of his people behind layers of barriers and and nobody can get at him. Remember, again, the way into the holy place was not yet revealed as long as this dwelling is standing. But God's intent was not just to have a physical structure in the middle of a people and he's, he's right there with them, but at a distance and unaccessible, inaccessible, but that he would be in the midst of his people relationally in truth. That's what's behind the prophet's promise concerning this new sanctuary and ultimately rolling us all the way back to the promise that was at the heart of the promise to Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, I will be their God, they will be my people. In truth, in truth. God's goal was to merge his heavenly dwelling with an earthly dwelling that has man at its center. Remember, we talked about how even Eden is a picture of the sanctuary. In the ancient world, when you would build a temple to a god, the last thing you would do is put an image of that god, a tangible representation of that deity in the sanctuary. And that was the point of interface between the worshiper and the deity, the image in the temple. And Genesis 1 is constructed in that way that you see man as the image. The last thing God does when he constructs this garden sanctuary where he's to dwell is he creates an image, man, the image and likeness of God, and puts him in the midst of the sanctuary. God's purpose was to not just fill the universe but to be present in his world, present in his universe, to bring the heavenly and the earthly realm together, but with man at the center. The God who does not dwell in temples made with hands dwells with the contrite and broken in spirit. God determined to realize that goal through one particular man. We talked last time about uh, the picture in Isaiah chapter 2 of God says, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the chief of the mountains. And all the nations will stream to Zion to meet Yahweh at his house, at his dwelling place. And a few chapters later, you have the, the revealing of the root and the stem of Jesse who stands as a rallying point for all the nations to come. The messianic son of David becomes equivalent with that house that the nations stream to. Jesus understood himself to be that man. And we talked about how the Gospel of John is very much centered in this idea of sanctuary and how Jesus sees himself as the Messiah, as the new dwelling of God. And a a, a central doctrine or a central issue in the early church's gospel witness is that God has restored, God has indeed begun to build up his dwelling place 
with the Messiah as the chief cornerstone. The God who does not dwell in temples now dwells with men, but with the Messiah as the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the corner of the house. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. The point of all of this is that this new sanctuary, what's being portrayed here in chapter 9, shouldn't be conceived in a literal sense. And maybe I don't even need to say that. But the idea here is not a temple up in heaven where God is sitting on a throne and Jesus, the high priest, is going in and out, bringing sacrifices or doing whatever, mediating for his people. And I know our minds think that way. When we think of Jesus as high priest, we're thinking of him in a place, going into the presence of God and doing his priestly thing. The writer is using this kind of language because it is temple language. It is priestly language. And it's to underscore the fact that the whole Levitical ministration, the the work in the tabernacle, the, the, the way in which that whole system worked, was, as he says, a prophetic parable. It's a way for us to understand the messianic work and the messianic ministration as a high priest. It's not talking about a literal reality. So as with the sanctuary, so with this priest's ministration, the writer is depicting Jesus' ministration in terms of Yom Kippur. Why? Well, because he's the new high priest, right? When Christ, the high priest of the good things to come, Most narrowly, Jesus' priesthood is associated with the high priest. What's most narrowly associated with the high priest? The Day of Atonement, the annual ministration in the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Shekinah glory cloud of God between the wings of the cherubim. So he's most connecting this in terms of imagery or depiction. He's connecting it most with Yom Kippur. But once again, the depiction is symbolic. It's not literal. He's not giving us uh, a newspaper account of a literal action that Jesus undertook after his death, carrying his blood into a, a, a temple up in heaven. And I say that because So much space has been given among Catholic writers, Protestant writers, before and since the Reformation, dealing with how to understand this idea of Jesus carrying out his priesthood in a heavenly tabernacle. And various Catholic ideas have led to the ways in which they've understood the Eucharist and the Eucharistic sacrifice. Protestants as well. Everything from, you know, the sacrifice being separate from the ministration. So the cross really was not the priestly work in any sense. It was just the killing, like it corresponded to the killing of the animal. Then you take the blood and do the priestly work. So Jesus had to carry his own blood up into heaven. Some believe it was during the three days, you know, when when his body was in the grave. That was when he, he went up and did that. 
Some have associated it with even after the resurrection when he says to Mary, don't cling to me, I haven't yet returned to my father. He's got to go up and bring his blood up there. Uh, and then, then after that, he'll come back and then he'll spend the 40 days, then he'll have the final ascension. Other Protestant scholars have held that, no, this really the atonement work wasn't done until Jesus ascended because that's when he actually went to heaven with his blood. And, and it just keeps stretching and stretching and straining the point that's being made. This is not a literal account. It's a symbolic account. And to me, all of those ideas aside, where, where, where I find problem with that, most importantly, is in this notion that Jesus needed to present his blood to his father so that the father could assess it and say, okay, yes. I'll accept this atoning work that you have done. That correspondence with Israel's priest. Israel's high priest went into God's presence not knowing whether he was going to come back out, not knowing whether God was going to accept his sacrifice. And we want to see this in that way. Jesus is carrying his blood before the Father saying, here, I've done it. I, I hope that I've met your requirement." Whether it's viewed as, as a once-off or, or this is a perpetual bringing of his blood. You know, some scholars have said that Jesus' blood is incorruptible. And therefore, it never coagulates or, or, or goes bad or anything. And so he, he just kind of keeps, every time he goes in before the Father, he's bringing his blood with him. However, the, we want to view the specifics of, of that particular thing. The notion, again, that, that Jesus has to go before his father to present this for his examination and assessment implies a very important false uh, distinction between father and son. One that I would argue actually undermines the truth of who Jesus is and the work that he performed. Here's my point. Jesus' sacrifice was every bit his father's sacrifice. See, we've tended to have this notion that, uh, and it's kind of the caricatured way of looking at it, but, you know, God's ready to just shoot his arrow into us, and Jesus steps in front of him and says, here, shoot me instead. Jesus is precisely... In his person and his work, he's precisely the truth of the Father and the Father's work. The Father sends him. His sacrifice is every bit his Father's sacrifice. I'm not saying the Father was incarnate, but Jesus himself, the very notion of his deity is really bound up in this idea that he is Yahweh returned to Zion. He is the Lord having returned to put all things right. He is the God of Israel who has come to put all things right. He's not taking the arrow by jumping in front of God's bow. The incarnation is fundamental to God's determination to give himself for the creation that he loves. This is just a very quick statement, but, but, but this is one of the things that I think Thomas Torrance 
is so good at getting at. As a Trinitarian theologian, he understands the way these things work. But here's just a couple of sentences related to this idea. He says, God ranges himself on the side of the sinner in opposition to their sin, that he may deliver them from their bondage in sin and make them free for fellowship with him. God's love is his unconditional assertion that he is for man. He is on man's side. And therefore, it is the love of God that makes humanity's lost and ruined cause God's own cause. God makes our cause his cause. That's what the incarnation is all about. It's not just that you have to have a human being who can, uh, you know, have blood flow out of him in order to make this thing work. It's God taking up man's cause. He makes humanity's lost and ruined cause God's own cause so that God stoops down to take their cause upon himself in order to emancipate men and women and reconcile them to himself. This is the work of the triune God. The idea that Jesus goes and presents something to his father to see you know, whether he'll receive it or not, it doesn't even make any sense. The writer isn't here depicting a transaction in the priestly sense. That's in, in the Old Testament priestly sense. That's where the correspondence breaks down. He's highlighting, really, I believe, the solidarity of father and son. The solidarity of father and son. So the goal, then, that is being described here, the goal of this ministration is not just dealing with satisfaction for sin in the way that we think about it. Yom Kippur is definitely in the forefront, and Yom Kippur has the idea of, of atonement at the center of it, but atonement is broader than we tend to want to make it. As much as this is about satisfaction for sin, and it is, the big emphasis throughout this context is cleansing from defilement. Cleansing from defilement. The writer is thinking about Jesus' priestly ministration in the comprehensive sense, not just satisfying the debt of guilt due to sin and transgression, but true purification, the restoration of the offender. And I, I highlight that because it's the natural tendency for us, certainly in our culture, to think of the cross of Christ, what's, what's being symbolically represented here, to think of that primarily in terms of meeting the demands of divine justice against wrongdoing. And I'm not saying that's not in there. But that's what we tend to think of this as. God has a standard, you broke the standard, here's the penalty for the standard. Jesus steps in and he says, I'll take the penalty, therefore now you can 
not have to suffer the penalty. God's justice has to be satisfied in the sense of, here's the standard, you broke it, there's the penalty, I've got to carry through the penalty. Who will take it? Well, Jesus will take it. I'm grateful he'll take it for me. When we think of the cross strictly in that way, we end up minimizing, and I would argue in a lot of cases, even overlooking the crucial aspect of atonement that is renewal. Renewal. As I've said before, you know, there's three kind of primary Hebrew understandings or or terms that refer to this idea of violation. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. And they each have a different nuance to them. But sin fundamentally is the idea of, of going off course or, or deviating. Missing the mark is the way you often hear it. Like you shoot an arrow and it, it goes off to the side. Sin is kind of a generic idea. But behind sin lies this idea of iniquity. It's an inward bent. In other words, the reason that the arrow misses the mark is because the guy holding the bow can't aim straight. So the effect is the arrow going off course, but the arrow going off course isn't really the problem. The problem is the inability to aim and shoot straight. This inward bent, it's the crookedness and crookedness not in the sense of immorality per se or you know wickedness in the way that we think about it but it's it's a a bent away from the truth of our actual created nature and design it's falseness and falseness can look like morality falseness can look like piety falseness can look like religion it's still false Iniquity underlies violation. That's why God called Israel's lawlessness harlotry. Because the truth of Israel's existence was son, servant, disciple, witness. Israel was son of God. The covenant defined and prescribed Israel's relationship with God as a son to a father. So Israel's violation wasn't, you know, breaking a civil code or a list of commandments or whatever per se. It was the violation of relational fidelity. Israel was a harlot. Zion, the covenant entity, was a harlotrous wife who bore harlotrous children for God. Harlotry was the issue, relational infidelity. At the heart of the obligation of Israel, you see it in the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? He said, that's it. And the second is like it because it flows out of it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On those two things hang all the law and the prophets. 
What is the law really about? Paul says, whatever commandment you want to mention, it has its pleroma, its true essence, in its fullness in this. You will love your neighbors yourself. You will love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The issue with sin, the issue with the bent, the issue with transgression, breaking a commandment, is ultimately lovelessness. That's why even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, depart from me, you lawless ones. You broke this rule, you broke that rule, you broke this commandment. No, I never knew you. Relational infidelity. Remember, again, I started off by saying that the issue here, he says the Spirit is testifying what? Alienation continues, even though there's sacrifice, even though there's approach. There's still God at a distance. There's still alienation between God and his image children. That's what Messiah comes to solve. So when the prophets were promising covenant renewal and the the restoring of God's dwelling among his people, they were ultimately promising human renewal. Because man is that center piece in the whole idea of God's sanctuary, God's dwelling place, the image in the center of the temple, right? He's promising human renewal and ultimately new creation. God's intent, his design associated with this whole ministration that, 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 that was portrayed in Israel's life and ultimately is, it becomes um, fulfilled in the Messiah himself and his work, God's design was to have children who know him and conform to him in the inner person. That's why the writer cites from Jeremiah 31. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will put Torah in their heart and their mind. And that renewing work has to extend beyond forgiveness from transgression. It has to extend beyond satisfaction of guilt. And I'm not saying there isn't the need for satisfaction of guilt. I'm not saying that there isn't the need of forgiveness. I'm not saying there isn't the need even of cleansing, which the writer emphasizes, but even cleansing itself isn't sufficient because that which is clean can become unclean again. That's what happened with Israel. It was a constant washing, washing, washing. This is a washing of renewal that the Messiah brings. In other words, the point is not simply to say, you did something wrong, I'm going to see to it that the debt is paid, Uh, now you don't have to go to jail, or you don't have to die, or you don't have to go to hell, or whatever, Um, now I've taken care of this for you. Go on and have a nice life. And it's not even go on and don't do those things again. It's a new creation. becoming a new sort of human being. It's not polishing the apple. It's not washing the apple. It's the apple becoming what God ultimately intended it to be. It is satisfaction. It is forgiveness. It is cleansing unto sonship. Go back and read Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
He chose us in him, having predestined us for what? Adoption as sons. Read Romans 8. What has come in the Messiah? What was it that Torah couldn't do? What was it that the law couldn't do? Weakened by the sin nature. What is it that the Messiah has done? We have become sons. Sons and heirs. Joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of all that he is heir to. The work of atonement, you can think of it if you want in this way, it is at one It's the, the work of reconciliation, ultimately. Reconciliation and renewal in which the beneficiaries are enlivened to share in the life of God himself and so become his dwelling place unto the goal of God's full union with his creation. Paul says the sovereign God who's working all things after the counsel of his will, what is he doing? He's administering this fulfillment that has come in the Messiah unto his goal that he will sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in his son. That means us as well, right? But that summing up of everything in the son has human beings at the center, If you go back even to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see the place of man in God's creation and the function for it, that's what God has in mind. And, you know, Ephesians 1 again, Ephesians 2, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, God made us alive together with Christ so that our guilt can be taken away and we can be washed up. No. So that those who are far and those who are near can become one new human being in the Messiah, a new human community, the dwelling of God in the spirit. That's the destiny. That's what this is all about. It is about forgiveness, but forgiveness stops short. I don't want to just be forgiven. It is about satisfaction of guilt. It is about justice in that sense, but that's not enough. God didn't just liberate Israel so that they were out from under their slavery in Egypt. He brought them to himself, that they would dwell with him. The ultimate goal, again, is this, what what Jesus represents, the meaning of his cross in John 14. I and you, you and me. I go to prepare a place for you. What is that place? The Father and I will come and make our place with you. If you keep my word, then you love me. And then my father will love you and we will come and make our place with you. In that day, you will know that I am in you and you are in me as I am in my father. That's what this is all about. So just very quickly in closing then, when we think about the good things to come, this one who's come as the high priest of the good things that were to come, and the implication is they have now come in the Messiah. What are these good things? Is it my best life now? Is it forgiveness of sin? Is it my marriage being fixed? What What are these good things that the Messiah has brought into place? What are these good things that Sinai and its ministration, the Israel's covenant life with God, what, what those things were about but couldn't realize? Because that's what the writer is saying. 
Well, again, he says that the Levitical ministration that God had in place to manage and maintain this covenant relationship, it could only touch the outer person. It was a washing and a cleansing and a dealing with outward defilement, but it couldn't really get at the issue. And he states that again in terms of this idea of conscience. The blood of bulls and goats, goats and calves, and the ashes of the heifer, if you go back and read the ordinance of the red heifer, it was, the pri- it was a primary means of cleansing in Israel, not just from sin, but any kind of defilement. A consecrated heifer whose ashes were mixed with water, and it became a, a washing solution. If you were defiled by a body, if you were defiled by this, if you were, it was a, a cleansing mechanism. That's what he's talking about. If these things were able to wash or cleanse to the, the cleansing of the outer man, how much more will the blood of Christ deal with the issue of inner conscience to serve the living God? The Levitical system spoke to the need of washing. It couldn't deal with the issue of renewal. And that was why it was a perpetual thing. Perpetual washing, perpetual sacrifice, perpetual priestly work. It could not cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And this idea of dead works means more than just bad behavior. You broke the law, you have to come, you have to get your sins cleansed. Dead works means much more than that. Whatever an Israelite's piety was, whatever an Israelite's faithfulness to Torah was, whatever the priest's faithfulness to their own responsibility and work under Torah, all of that constituted dead works. It was the exertions of human beings severed from God's life. Ephesians 4. As I've told you before, I say again, no, you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, separated from the life of God because of the foolishness that is in them, the darkness of their hearts. Driven by callousness, driven by sensuality, living in the context of death. Dead works are the works of natural man, whether they're religious, whether they're pious, whether they're good, whether they're upright, whether they're noble, whatever. Paul, the man blameless under Torah, said, I was a blasphemer and a grievous offender. Right? And the writer's point is that in this condition of death, where everything is dead works, he says there is no capacity, it's impossible to serve the living God. Dead works can't serve the living God. Death and life are mutually exclusive. This imagery is all throughout the Old Testament with respect to Israel. My mind always goes back to Ezekiel 37. Son of man, can these dead bones live? This is the whole house of Israel. So Jesus' priestly work reached beyond the surface of human defilement to get to its root. 
what we call sin is really just a symptom. It's just an external expression. What we call lying is maybe one narrow sense of what lying can be, but lying is ultimately the falseness of our humanness, even if we're always factually correct. And that's for another time. We'll get there with Rahab. But Jesus' priestly work reached through the surface issue to actually get at the root. His ministration accomplished what was portrayed and prefigured, foreshadowed in Israel's priestly ministration. He was an Israelite like them. He was made like his brethren in all things. But unlike those priests, Jesus was man as truly man, man of the spirit. People often say to me, what's the difference between the first Adam and the last Adam? Because we tend to think, okay, you know, Adam was fine before he fell. Adam was really what man's supposed to be. And so in a sense, what Jesus does is get us back to our pre-fallen Adamic state. And that's not true. Adam was the starting point, even as created and unfallen. He wasn't the ultimacy of what man is. And, okay, what's the difference between Adam as created and the last Adam? I think the scriptures treats it in this way, relationship with the spirit. The promise of this coming one would be man of the spirit. Jesus reads from the scroll, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me. The spirit at his baptism, the spirit driving him. He becomes Man as God truly intends him to be. Man of the spirit. Man animated in form, led by God's spirit in living union with him. That's the ultimacy of human existence. And so Jesus did this ministration as true man, enlivened and empowered by the spirit. And so he, as priest, agreed with God against man... But as man, bearing our own fallenness, bearing our own Adamic humanness, he, he, he agreed with God against man, but he also agreed with man in the sense of owning the truth as it came from God. Jesus owned the truth from both sides. The truth of God's estimation and God's truth and the truth of man's own obligation man's own lot, judgment, and destiny. And he did that not just to secure forgiveness and cleansing, but to see the human race, the human creature, become all that he is. Romans 8. And in that way, then, they would become the habitation of the living God. This is at the heart of what separates Jesus and faith in him from all other religious and philosophical constructs. And I don't know if you think about that much, but, you know, every religion has its avatar, it has its holy book, it has its moral standard, it has its, you know... uh, philosophical truths, its, its corpus of doctrine. What's the big deal with Jesus? You know, Muhammad told people to live a certain way too. Buddha 
tells people to live a certain way. What's the big deal with Jesus? Well, there is no big deal with him unless we understand rightly what it's all about. If all that Jesus did was to come to deal with the fact that God's upset with us, and in a certain sense, get us right with God and deal with our, our, our violations, then in many ways, there's a parallel with a lot of philosophical constructs, ways to appease the deity, so to speak. But the good things that have come in him, the good things that were promised and that were anticipated, are not just how to not have the deity be angry with you, but how to be caught up and be a part of this thing called new creation. The summing up of everything in the Messiah. Not a better, more successful path to a good outcome when I die. But a being a part of this purpose of God for the whole creation that Paul says we'll see God being all in all. It's a cosmic transformational joining all things to God in the way that he intends. In other words, the whole creation becoming his sanctuary with man at the center. No philosophy, no religion holds that view of things. What distinguishes our faith, saints, and what we proclaim is we proclaim not a better life, not a more moral life, not more accurate doctrine, not better historical facts, but new creation. New creation. Well, there's a whole lot more that we're going to be unfolding, but that's just kind of a a segue into this. What is this entrance of Christ? How does this tie in with the priesthood? What is it really to understand this work of Jesus in, in the light of the priesthood and what really he's accomplished and ultimately what it is for us to be part of that. Father, I imagine a lot of these things are probably not new uh, to most of us, but perhaps some of them are. I pray that, as I always pray, that you will not allow these things to sit in our heads as a matter of either confusion or interesting information or doctrinal precision, but that, Father, they would capture us, they would define us, they would determine us. I thought about these things much as Cliff was talking about the Apostle Paul because these are the things that drove him. We say, how could he endure all that he did with joy? Was he just good at putting on a happy face? Did he have a very high threshold of pain? Was he good at deceiving himself? Was he trying to create an impression with people? He understood what it means to be raised up in Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenly places in him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He understood what it means to be children of the Most High God. 
and nothing could touch him. Nothing could touch his joy, nothing could touch his peace, nothing could touch his contentment, nothing could move him off course, nothing could derail him. Because he knew the one that he had believed and he understood what had been accomplished. He understood what it was to be a part of this new creation grounded in Jesus himself. And the, the ultimate destiny that were, would not just come to him, but to the human race and ultimately to the whole creation. And when Paul saw his own life and his own story situated in God's larger story in that way, it truly allowed him to be as hinds feet on high places. And I pray it would be so with us. I pray these things would captivate our hearts and our minds. They would be the things we think about, the things that we meditate on, the things that drive our, our understanding, our attitudes, the way we think about the future, the way we think about the present, the way we think about the past the way we think about what it means to live faithfully in these days. What it means to truly be followers of Jesus, to be Christians. Father, we have much to learn, much to grow in. And I pray that by your spirit, you would continue to renew us, to transform us by the renewing of our minds. That in all things, we would grow up in Christ. It's in his name and ultimately for the sake of his name and his glory in the church and in the world that we ask these things. Amen.